In his best-selling book, Good to Great, Jim Collins writes this, Are you a hedgehog or a fox? In his famous essay, The Hedgehog and the Fox, Isaiah Berlin divided the world into hedgehogs and foxes, based upon an ancient Greek parable. Berlin wrote, The fox knows many things. But the hedgehog knows one big thing. Collins goes on to say the fox is a cunning creature able to devise a myriad of complex strategies for sneak attacks upon the hedgehog. Day in and day out, the fox circles around the hedgehog's den waiting for the perfect moment to pounce. Fast, sleek, beautiful and crafty. The fox looks like the sure winner. The hedgehog, on the other hand, is a dowdier creature, looking like a genetic mix-up between a porcupine and a small armadillo. He waddles along, going about his simple day, searching for lunch and taking care of his home. The fox waits in cunning silence at the juncture in the trail. The hedgehog, minding his own business, wanders right into the path of the fox, Aha, I got you now, says the fox. He leaps out, bounding across the ground, lightning fast. The little hedgehog, sensing danger, looks up and thinks, Here we go again. Will he ever learn? Rolling up into a perfect little ball, the hedgehog becomes a spear of sharp spikes, pointing outward in all directions. The fox sees the hedgehog defense. And calls off the attack. Each day some version of this battle takes place. And despite the greater cunning of the fox. The hedgehog always wins. Berlin extrapolated from this little parable. To divide people into two basic groups. Foxes and hedgehogs. Foxes pursue many ends at the same time, and they see the world in all its complexity. They are, quote, scattered or diffused, moving on many levels, says Berlin, never integrating their thinking into one overall concept or unifying vision. Hedgehogs, on the other hand, simplify a complex world into a single organizing idea, a basic principle or concept that unifies and guides everything. It doesn't matter how complex the world, a hedgehog reduces all challenges and dilemmas to simple, indeed almost simplistic, hedgehog ideas. For a hedgehog, anything that does not somehow relate to the hedgehog idea, holds no relevance. When Jim Collins was writing his book, he interviewed many, many people, and one of them was Professor Marvin Bressler of Princeton University. And this professor had this to say, quote, You want to know what separates those who make the biggest impact from all the others who are just as smart? They're hedgehogs. End quote. That brings us to our first slide this morning. It brings us to our purpose as Kerrville Bible Church, to our mission as a church gathered and scattered, 
It, it brings us to our unifying vision. Our hedgehog concept. We exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. Again, this is our basic principle. This is our single organizing idea. This is our concept that unifies and guides everything or should be and hopefully will be in the weeks, months and years to come. If you were with us last week, we began to unpack our purpose, pillars and foundation. And last week we spent the entire time focused on this, our purpose We exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. That is why we are here. I said last week that you and I need to move toward one life, not two lives or three lives or ten lives like the fox. We need to be like this hedgehog with one simple concept, one trick in our bag, one unifying purpose in life. We need to not have a life that is sometimes focused on the Great Commission and then other times we're doing our own thing, trying to be a moral, good Christian. We need to bring those two paths together as one path and see everything. Well, see, first of all, that I exist. I exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. And then everything else in my life is secondary to this great purpose. Everything else in my life, and I mean everything is a means to an end, and the great end is glorifying God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. That won't always be our purpose. That won't be our purpose in eternity. It'll change because we won't be about making disciples in eternity, but that is our purpose here and now. That is our purpose in this fallen world, in this brief, brief moment of time that God has given you and given me. That is our purpose because that is why we're still here. If that wasn't our purpose, we could go on and graduate to heaven. But we haven't. God's left us here and he's left us here for this purpose. Again, I want you to replace the we or interchange the we with I and believe that this can still be true. So we did that last week. If you weren't here, I beg you to go back to our website, to the live stream archive and listen and watch that sermon if you were not with us last week, especially if you're a member of our church, because these are very foundational days in the life of our church. Now, the next step is we need to know what making disciples looks like. If that's our purpose, if that's our hedgehog concept, what does it look like in practical terms? Well, biblically, it looks like Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And we were there last week. Jesus said, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. This is what it looks like biblically. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's what it looks like biblically. Or to say it another way, our second slide Discipleship happens when the lost are saved, the saved mature, and the mature multiply. See, in the Great Commission, the baptizing them is a reference to the salvation of that individual. When that person has become converted and then they give public testimony to that in the waters of baptism. 
And the fact that the mature multiply is, is really tied to the end of the Great Commission when Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This mandate, this commission goes on and on and on and on to the end of the age. So that disciples become disciple makers who make others into disciples who become disciple makers. And on it goes. And you and I are here this morning Because someone in our past made a disciple. Someone came to us with the message of Jesus Christ. And in their efforts and by their means, God made disciples of us. The question is, who's going to come after us? Who's going to come after us? Let's unpack this pithy, memorable saying a little bit. Discipleship happens when the lost are saved. When we tell unconverted Tiffany... What Jesus did in his life, in his death on the cross for her sins, in his resurrection from the dead, in ascending back to heaven. When we tell her what Jesus did, the mere telling of that story glorifies God, does it not? It glorifies God. But if she repents, it glorifies God even more. Discipleship happens when the lost are saved. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're the lost who need to be saved. You see, that's where discipleship begins. It begins with a conversion of your heart and life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. When you finally surrender to Him, wave the white flag, give up your life, take up your cross, And follow Christ. Follow Christ because He lived for you a perfect life you cannot live. Follow Christ because He died in your place on a cross, paying a penalty you cannot pay. Following Christ because He rose from the dead, conquering death, conquering the devil, conquering sin, and conquering hell itself. Giving your heart, soul, life, body, your all in all to Him who is all in all. That's when discipleship begins. No one is a disciple who has not taken up their cross, denied themselves, and prepared to follow Christ. The saved then are to mature. If someone teaches Tiffany to observe all that Christ commanded, and she learns and she obeys Jesus more and more, including immersion in water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, If she does that, this will glorify God even more. Agree? It's even more glorifying. It brings even more attention to the greatness of God when people begin to obey Christ as disciples, when they begin to mature. Discipleship happens when the lost are saved, when the saved mature, and when the mature multiply, when they reproduce, when they Spread the gospel and others come along. You see, if Tiffany then turns around after her Sunday morning in church where she was baptized in the waters of baptism, if she goes to work on Monday morning and at a break or at lunch or at some point where it is appropriate, she shares the gospel with a co-worker friend. And that friend repents and believes in Christ. This glorifies God even more. This is what it means then to multiply as a disciple. I want to poll the congregation this morning. 
And the polling will be by way of show of hands. And I really want you to listen to the question carefully. And I want you to really think about it carefully. I have three short questions. Think before you raise your hand. Question number one. Let me, let me get it all out before you, before you answer with a show of hand, if, if this is appropriate. Were you saved at Kerrville Bible Church? Through the ministry of this church, through the ministry of someone in this church, were you converted to Christ? Did you become a Christian in and through the ministry of Kerrville Bible Church? If that is true of you, would you raise your hand? Praise the Lord. Amen. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Second question. You came here as a Christian. Have you matured as a Christian at Kerrville Bible Church through the ministry of the people of Kerrville Bible Church? Have you matured in the Lord? Raise your hand. Thank you. Third question. Have you multiplied as a disciple? Are other people Christians and growing as Christians in obedience to Christ through the means of you, God's instrument? Raise your hand. I can't go like Did y'all see the results of the polling? Another concept that Jim Collins brings out in his book, Good to Great, is that we must face the brutal facts. That's a, I love that phrase. It really sticks. You must face the brutal facts in your life. You must ask yourself the hard questions. His is a, a business kind of book. He says the companies that make the leap from good companies to great companies are those companies that are willing to face the brutal facts and ask the hardest questions and have the leaders who listen more than they talk. And so we must do the same as a church and as individual Christians. We must ask the hard questions. If the lost are not being saved, and if the saved are not maturing, and if the maturing are not multiplying, why not? Why not? And that brings us, beloved, to our four pillars. Our four pillars that now... Hold up and support this purpose. You can see it all on the front of your bulletin if you haven't noticed it by now. The top part is our purpose, our hedgehog concept. And now these four pillars are what bear the load of that structure, that top. They are, number one, passionate worship of Christ. Number two, a personal walk with Christ. Number three, sacrificial work for Christ, and number four, loving witness to Christ. Are they up there? So there you see the four, the four pillars. I really want everyone to memorize these. And I don't think there's anyone here that can't at least memorize worship, walk, work, and witness as our four pillars. If you can go beyond and get the rest of it, all the better. Here are the pillars of which... Kerrville Bible Church stands for 
and upholds our purpose. Now, as you're looking at these, consider this. Each of these four is essential to glorify God. Each of them essential. Each of these is essential to a mature disciple. A mature disciple is about and doing and regular and consistent in each of these four. Each of these is essential to bear the load of the hedgehog concept. You cannot take any one of them away and still bear the load. You see what I'm saying? This is what mature discipleship looks like, and this is the path to making disciples. It's both. It's both. My proof of that statement is simply this. Who is the greatest disciple and the greatest disciple maker ever? And it's not Paul. It's Jesus Christ. Who is the greatest disciple and the greatest disciple maker ever? It was Christ himself. Consider each pillar in light of Christ's life. Christ's life was one of a passionate worship of his father. A personal walk with his father, sacrificial work for his father, and loving witness to his father. Christ is the prototype disciple. Christ is the model disciple. He himself said that he only did what he saw. And he only spoke what he heard. He did not come on his own initiative. He did not come with his own message. He was sent. He was a disciple of the Father. He was a perfectly obedient disciple of his father. Listen, here's the connection. In his perfect obedience as a disciple, he was making disciples. That's how you do it. And that's glorious because we don't have to have two or three lives. We live one life of passionate worship, a personal walk, sacrificial work, and loving witness. And if we do those things consistently, regularly, we will, in fact, make disciples. It's guaranteed. Because this, beloved, these, beloved, are God's means to God's end. This is how he designed it. And he captured it all in the greatest disciple and greatest disciple maker ever. So today we're going to unpack the first two of our four pillars. The first two of our four. As we see the means then to this great end of glorifying God by making disciples. So number one is a passionate worship of Christ. Turn your Bibles to John chapter one. John chapter 1. And follow along as I read part of this chapter. Verses 1 to 5 and then 14 to 18. Because, beloved, what I'm about to read to you in these familiar words is passionate worship of Christ. This is John writing scripture and worshiping as he does so. In the beginning was the word 
And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overpower it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory Glorious of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. In this prologue of the Gospel of John, designed so that you might read it and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, John, the Apostle, begins with worship. He begins with uh, taking us to the eternal heavens and the eternal realm Considering who Jesus is, pre-creation, the eternal Word made flesh, who is co-equal, co-substantial with God Himself, in the beginning, face to face, in perfect fellowship with God, through whom all of creation came into being, verse 3. In Him is life. Life is the light of men. We've all experienced it. Even if we're unsaved, we've experienced the common grace of His life and the light of men. And this light continuously shines in the darkness. And the darkness will never be able to put it out. Because it is the light of God Himself. And and then this eternal Word, this eternal Logos, this eternal message of God, this eternal voice of God, this, this eternal God took on human flesh. He became a human being like you and I. Unbelievable. How do you write these words without worshiping? How do you read these words without wanting to fall on your knees and on your face? And John, recollecting 50 years prior, says he tabernacled among us. He looks at Jesus like he is the very tabernacle in the wilderness, the housing place of God. And he says he tabernacled among us. And we, the disciples, saw His manifest glory. We saw saw His shining brilliance. John was there at the Mount of Transfiguration. Glory is the only Son from the Father. And He's full. He's infinitely full of grace. And He's infinitely full of truth. And, and, And because He is, we're just receiving constantly, He says in verse 16. Like waves of the sea continuously rolling over the believer. Grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. Every day more grace. All of this realized through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ who has seen God. Jesus Christ who came from the very heart of God. Jesus Christ who exegetes God. Explains God. Puts God on display because He is a perfect disciple. You see, the perfect disciple becomes like His master. And Jesus came that way. What a worshipful passage this is. 
Or how about Colossians 1? Let's go there for a moment and worship together. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Paul, the great theologian, says this of this Christ. He says he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn or prototokos, the preeminent one of all creation. Verse 16, Colossians 1, 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He, Jesus Christ, is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, including you and this building and your life and everything that's precious to you. It is all held together in Christ. Verse 18, He is also head of the body of the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. There is a universal reconciliation coming, a universal consummation coming, all wrapped up and summed up in Jesus Christ. He is to be worshipped. He is to be worshipped with great passion. You see, beloved, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, we could go on and on. Revelation 1, Revelation 5. These passages are here for us, not as dry doctrine. This is Christology that leads to doxology. Christology that leads to doxology. Worship. We said a few weeks back that worship is when we engage our mind, our heart, our soul, and our body in responding to the revelation of God. And so as you read these passages, memorize these passages, meditate on them, your mind, your emotions, your will, your body even ought to respond to this revelation with passionate worship. This passionate worship can and should be alone. There should be times in our lives where we passionately, secretly, privately worship Christ alone. On our knees By our beds, in our prayer closets, on a walk in some secret place where you are expressing to Jesus what he means to you. We should do this as a family, as couples, as a family. We should worship Christ passionately. This is not something just for Sunday mornings, just for the church setting. It should be happening alone. It should be happening as families and certainly it should be happening as a church. I like how Peter puts it in 1 Peter 1. He describes worship this way. Worship is greatly rejoicing with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Greatly rejoicing with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So I want to talk about worship in church for a few moments. Again, don't think I'm just saying at church, it's alone, it's family, it's at church. But I want to speak on the corporate aspect, the gathered aspect of our worship. 
I think this worship can only be accomplished when you and I die to the fear of man. We have to die to the fear of man. And yet be sensitive to those who are around us. Passionate here. Let me define what I mean by passionate. Passionate means it's real worship. It's energetic. It's from the heart. And it's in spirit and in truth. If we're passionate about something, we're alive to it. We're enthused by it. We're sincere in it. Passionate means you are all in and you're all here. You're, you're engaged. You're dialed in and you're focused. And we all know that you cannot worship Christ passionately. In fact, you cannot worship Christ at all if you're plagued with a thousand distractions. So, so passionate is focused worship of Christ. A thousand lesser things will keep our hearts from a passionate Worship. Can I just speak for a moment about the biblical freedom of expression that you have here in this place to passionately worship Christ? Regardless of what you've heard before about Kerrville Bible Church to this moment, regardless of what your perception is about Kerrville Bible Church to this moment, I want to set all of that aside and I want to I want to give out today a license and a freedom to appropriate biblical expression of worship. What do I mean? I mean this. If you want to raise your hands, raise your hands. By all means, raise them. If you want to clap where it is appropriate to clap, then clap. Okay? Now, don't get mad at me if I don't clap. Because I probably won't. And I won't judge you for clapping. Okay? Is it a deal? Is that fair? If you want to say, praise the Lord, then say, praise the Lord. If you want to say, preach it, say, preach it. If you want to say, amen, say, amen. Just don't say it after every phrase. I'm trying to spare you embarrassment. You know, you've seen those churches where the preacher goes, yeah, I was going down the road the other day. Amen. (laughs) Are you even listening? You know, I haven't even got to the point yet. So pick your spots and sing, sing, sing to the best of your ability. I don't believe we do that as a church. God bless our musicians. They work so hard. They prepare so much. And I doubt sometimes in some services whether everyone in here is singing to the best of their ability. I want to encourage you to do that. I want to exhort you to do that. I used to love playing basketball. And uh, the Lord gave me a, a great season of that way back when. It was my favorite sport always as a kid. And then it just kind of went away for a long time. And at about the age of 35, when I thought there would never be basketball again, the Lord, just in his common grace, gave me about five more years of regular basketball. And then the body began to break down (laughs) and and really throw a major uh, revolt against the sport. In fact, I quit and came back like three times over the next year. And I was about 41 at this point. And I finally just said, you know what? It just hurts more than it's enjoyable. 
But what I found myself doing at that point with brothers here in the church who were in their 20s and 30s, and I'd find out they played high school basketball and they liked basketball, and I said, do you play anywhere? They're like, oh, no, 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 I don't really play. I said, what? Do you not understand the clock is ticking? (laughs) You're 20-something years old, you're 30-something years old, and you like basketball and you're not playing? What is wrong with you, you know? Are you singing to the best of your ability? I carry a great burden in my life. It does make me get emotional. I cannot sing a lick. And I hate it. And I can't wait for heaven. I don't even want to hear my own voice down here. And most of the time I'm either lip syncing or I'm not singing at all. Because my own voice ruins my worship. I want to hear you guys sing. If you can sing, will you bless us? Will you use your voice and sing to the very best of your ability? I guess it was Tim Keller that said, don't come to church to worship. Come to church worshiping. Come to church worshiping. This is what it means then to have passionate worship of Christ. It means that Sunday morning starts on Saturday night. It means you show up here well rested. For the most important day of your week and the most important hour of your most important day. You come well rested, as John Piper says, to go hard after God. To go hard after God. To pursue Him. You know, we as a church probably love A.W. Tozer's classic, The Pursuit of God. We love to read about it, but are we doing it? Are we doing it in our worship? Not only to go hard after God in our singing and in our worship, but also hard after God in our listening. We ought to be aggressive listeners, worshipful listeners, hanging for every nugget, every morsel that God would give me. I come to church worshiping. I don't come to church to check my watch. Leave it at home. I don't come to church to play on my phone. Leave it in the car. I don't come to church to count the rocks behind me and see if I can discern any patterns in the rocks. See, busted. Busted. I come to church to passionately worship Christ. Now, here is a huge implication for us. An encouraging implication for us. Our worship glorifies God. And at the same time, it's disciple making. Wow, how good is this, Lord? How wonderful is this? I do the very thing I'm made to do. The very thing that gives me strength to strength. The very thing that builds me up. And in that very process, I'm making disciples. Let me illustrate that. A visitor comes through those doors over there and their life is in shambles, shambles. And they have heard that perhaps God could help them. But they're not sure. And they come into our worship service, this church, on any given Sunday morning. And I want to ask you this probing question. What conclusion will they come to about your God by observing your worship? The Bible tells us that unbelievers observe the worship of believers. 
It's happening. They may be our children. They may be someone we know that hasn't come to Christ yet. And we think they have. It may be a total stranger who's come in off of I-10 and parked in these pews. Just think for a moment. If they observed your worship, what would they conclude about God? Are we singing out amazing grace because we really believe it's amazing or is it amazing grace? How sweet the sound. Can't wait to go home today. What's for lunch? How are the cowboys going to do? Save the wretch like me. See, passionate worship is disciple making. It's part of it. It's a pillar. Why do we say passionate worship of Christ? Because he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. And he made purification of sins on our behalf. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he's coming again. What more do you need to passionately worship Christ. Now, our challenge is this, a daily personal worship of Christ, a daily family worship of Christ, and then a weekly passionate worship of Christ. All of those are essential. That's the first pillar. Pillar number two. Personal walk with Christ. Turn to First Peter chapter one. First Peter, Hebrews, James, Peter. First Peter chapter one, verses fifteen and sixteen. Let's go in verse fourteen to start. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts. Which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. As you know, holy means unique, set apart, not common, not profane. It means to be distinct and different. It means to... Uh, to be set apart from sin and set apart to God. That's all that uh, is involved in holiness. God is essentially and inherently holy. He's inherently unique and set apart. He is the one who called us to himself with a holy calling. And he says, as obedient children, then don't act like you used to act. Don't live like you used to live. Don't be conformed to those former lusts, those former passions that were of the flesh, that were ungodly, whether they be of gluttonous nature, over drinking, addictive nature, sexual nature, materialistic nature, idolatrous nature. We all had them and they owned us and they dominated us because we were ignorant of the power of the gospel of Christ. Verse 14 But then we were called by the Holy One of Israel, called to himself. And because of that call and out of that call, you and I can now live a holy life set apart to God. You shall be holy, for I am holy. This is our second pillar. It comes after passionate worship. And it reminds us that without this personal walk 
Our worship is a sham and our worship is a show. And see, that's why I say it's got to be daily, right? It can't just be something that happens here. It has to be something that happens day by day. I say a personal walk here with Christ. Personal. What's meant there is I can't walk for Christ with Christ for you. This is not by proxy. I can't pinch hit. I can't come off the bench and walk with Christ for you. And you can't walk with Christ for me. You can't do that in my place. This is not a vicarious situation here. It's personal. Okay. Personal also means it's real. It's real. Kids. Young people. You can't. Walk with Christ with your parents' faith. It's got to be your faith. It's got to be real to you. He's got to be real to you. Your sin has got to be real to you. His provision for it has got to be real to you. Not my parents' faith, my faith. Listen, if my mom and dad became Hindus tomorrow, I'm not going anywhere. This is my faith. I believe this regardless of what they do. Or don't do. Believe or don't believe. That's what you've got to have, kids. You've got to say, if mom and dad quit going to church, I'm going to church. If mom and dad quit reading the Bible, I'm reading the Bible. Because this is my God. And this is my Savior. And my faith does not depend on my parents. I own it. I own it. That's what I mean by personal walk with Christ. Personal says this, you know him and he knows you. You talk to him in prayer and he talks to you through the Bible. You love him and he loves you. And he is Lord and you are slave. That's the, that's the personal relationship we need with Christ. He commands, I obey. That's the arrangement. <laughs> he commands me, I obey him. This is our second load-bearing pillar, holding up our purpose. And we could say it this way, it's personal holiness. Personal holiness. It is a walk then. It is a personal walk with Christ. It doesn't say sprint or crawl or digression. It says walk. It, It speaks of progress, of movement, of going forward. Always moving forward. Always putting one step in front of the other. A walk indicates we hate sin and we're growing in obedience. We're not perfect. We're not perfectly holy. We never will be in this life. But we're moving toward it. We're growing in maturity. We're walking with Christ, not with the devil. Walking with Christ, not with the devil. Christ who is patient. Christ who is compassionate. Christ who is forgiving. Christ who is strengthening. Christ who picks us up when we fall down. Christ who cleans us up when we sin again and again and again. We walk with Christ in the Christian life. You see, making disciples starts with ourselves and then other people. We can't make disciples with a log in our eye. As the old hymn says, we must take time to be holy. We must take time to be holy. There is no microwave holiness. There is no instant holiness. It's not just add water, whip it up, and you're ready to go. It's step by step. It's day by day. It's week by week. It's year by year. Take 
time to be holy. It's not just going to happen to you. In fact, what will happen to you is unholy. If you're passive, if you just let things go, if you just float through life, what is guaranteed to happen is unholy, not holy. Again, we have another huge implication and a huge encouragement for us all. Listen, every effort, every effort you and I make toward personal holiness, every effort we make in our walk with Christ is an effort in disciple making. It is. These things are connected beautifully and wonderfully. And how encouraging that is to us. Every time we pray, every time we open our Bibles, we're glorifying God. And in that process, we're making disciples because we've got to be a disciple to make a disciple. Let's bring it closer to home. Perhaps dads, dads, you are not going to rightly lead your wife and kids until God is leading you. And you are walking with Christ. Moms, you are not going to rightly influence your kids aright until God is influencing you. Until you are walking with Christ. That's where the influence comes from. That's where the power comes from to make disciples of these little charges that God's put in our care. The world and the church has seen enough disciple makers who did not have a walk with Christ. Enough people putting up enough barriers to the gospel itself. We cannot disciple another until we're disciplined by grace and discipled by the Lord. So what is our purpose? Let's hear it. We exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. Let's do it again. We exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. Pillar number one. Passionate worship of Christ. Pillar number one. Pillar number two. Personal walk with Christ. Pillar number two. Personal walk with Christ. Amen? Amen. That's who we are. That's what we do. That's who we want to be. That's why we exist. Will we fail? Yes, we will fail. What do we do when we fail? We confess. We repent. And we move on. Confess. Repent. Move on. That's what you do when you fail. If you're visiting with us this morning or have been for a while checking out our church, I'm so thankful you're here. I want to meet you after the service right over here by the piano with the lovely Kim McKnight. And we'll meet you right over here. I'm so glad you're here, especially because you're hearing what we're all about as a church. Getting the first Hand scoop of why we exist.